Golden Spiral Media presents Dark Matter, a fan podcast dedicated to Extant on CBS. Each week, Mike and Dave explore the mysteries, characters, and drama that unfold on Extant, and they want to hear from you too. Send in your thoughts by calling 304-837-2278 or visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of Dark Matter, an extant podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number one, where we'll be talking about the series premiere of the CBS show Extant, entitled Reentry, And it's aired on July 9th, 2014, and was written by show creator Mickey Fisher. And as you mentioned in our episode zero, Dave, it was directed by Alan Coulter. And I just wanted to mention also, he's known not just for the movies you mentioned, but also... He's a big Boardwalk Empire and Sopranos director. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'm All not right. sure how that will <laughs> come in handy in this show, but pretty cool shows in, in their own right. And I think we're both going to have to bear with ourselves in the pronunciation of this <laughs> show's name. Extant. Extant. Yeah. We're, we'll get there eventually. But one cool thing that happened as we begin our discussion and talk a little bit about show news Dave, is that we got a little message from the show creator this week. Yeah, how cool was that? <laughs> it was sort of a shot in the dark. I sent him a Facebook message, and lo and behold, he responded back. And if I could just read what he said here, he says, Hey, Michael, fun fact, Dark Matter was the very first title I wrote down on the composition notebook of the script that would eventually become Extant. I switched it early on because it didn't quite land on the theme I was circling around. When things slow down here, I'll have to check it out. I hope you guys enjoy it. Best of luck to the podcast. And here's to going on this journey together. So, yeah, what a cool message to get from the show's creator. Yeah, now we've got you, you, you got some Twitter information also, right? Well, mainly because I mentioned last week that there weren't very many cast members, and there aren't, but I only gave a, a few people a mention. I just wanted to say, say who else was out there. You can follow Pierce Gagnon, who plays Ethan on the show. Uh, he, he actually has his Twitter account sort of monitored by his parents, which is very good of them. The showrunner, Greg Walker, has an account. Uh, 22 plates is his Twitter handle, kind of an interesting one, but also some of the more minor characters, Maury Sterling, who plays Gordon Kern. He's the uh, assistant director of ISEA, uh, Annie Wershing, who was the scrutinizing questioner in the audience, Femi Dodd. You know, I, I think I recognize her from NCIS, believe it or not. Oh, she's been on just about everything, I yeah. think. <laughs> but uh, Tyler Hilton, who plays Charlie Arthurs, is on Twitter as well. And you can also follow Tammy Roman, who plays Cass Hendy. She was the mom at the barbecue who uh, wanted to get uh, some margaritas ASAP. <laughs> and then there's also the Extant Writers Room has a Twitter. And also Jimmy John Louis, who is uh, known as the Haitian from Heroes. He recently joined the cast and will be coming on the show later as another astronaut. So we'll look forward to seeing him as well. All right, cool. Well, anytime you follow a genre show, you have to pay attention to the ratings. And I certainly think this is considered a genre show. 9.58 million 
for the premiere. And, you know, I guess we, we can't help but connect it to Under the Dome. Right. Because it's the same kind of setup. And Under the Dome brought in $13.2 million last summer. But look, 9.58 is still pretty darn respectable. And, you know, Under the Dome certainly had Stephen King attached to it. So that, that was a big deal. And, and obviously this has Halle Berry attached to it, and that's a big deal. So uh, I think I'm, I'm pretty pleased with 9.58. Yeah, and the Steven Spielberg factor as, as well. And I think this is going to get some word of mouth. So it'll be interesting to see if it goes up, because uh, usually the second episode gets a smaller audience. But this just might get a bigger one. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, now, you know how I feel about spoilers. And, you know, watching the premiere the other night, it just struck me really hard that, you know, the promos for the show, just they revealed too much for me. Yeah, yeah, it felt like we knew a lot of what was already going to happen. Yeah, I mean, she's, you know, hunched over the toilet, throwing up. Well, duh, we know she's pregnant. Yeah, there's no suspense in that case. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, the, the conversation dad's having with Ethan. And we know, he says, I need a flip. Well, we know what that means. It was not a big deal, the reveal, when he has his battery changed. That's right. And so there were a lot of things like that along the way. Even, even some pretty big ones, like the flashback scenes on the Seraphim station as well, uh, were mostly revealed to us already. So I don't know. Now, the other thing that occurred to me was, you know, the whole idea of Seraphim Station. And obviously, Seraphim refers to angels, but I had to then go look it up. And a Seraphim is, it refers to the highest order of angels who appeared to Isaiah in a vision of great spiritual importance. And so obviously, the religious connotations can't be ignored. And, and obviously, we have to consider the fact that she's having visions rather than seeing things <laughs> in reality. Yeah, and I don't know if they're going to play around with religion too much, but the fact that uh, discussion about the soul also came into it, you never know. If you're going to have a show that has a theme of uh, what does it mean to be alive, well, then perhaps religion's going to have to come into play. Yeah, and again, we've followed genre shows for too long, Mike, that uh, <laughs> you know these writers don't name things arbitrarily. No, <laughs> there's, <laughs> that's ge true. there's generally everything means something. Yeah, so uh, Seraphim Station is is a really cool name. That obviously there might be more out in space there since the space program has been privatized in this version of the future. Uh, but there's a lot of things we actually have an indeterminate timeline for this particular show and. I saw a little interview with Greg Walker and Mickey Fisher where they said that was purposeful, that it's in the future at some point, but they don't want to pin it down. Yeah, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. On the one hand, I felt like that they threw so many technological gadgets at us just to drive that point home. And I thought, why don't you just tell us what year it is? But then again, I certainly see the value in being purposely vague. So, you know, I'm cool with that. Yeah, in fact, I think the only problem I had with the entire episode was the pacing at the very beginning. And I think that was because of the techno toys that they were tossing out to, to give us a, a sense of setting. Yeah. Uh, but after that, of course, it picked up right away. Yeah. Well, you know, the opening scene, we see Molly Woods, who's obviously played by Halle Berry, and she's throwing up before what turns out to be her welcome home party. And it's a welcome home from her 13-month 
solo mission aboard Seraphim Station. And again, here's I just mentioned a minute ago, we already knew why she was throwing up. But <laughs> technological advances, I mean, we certainly see her tap the uh, bathroom mirror, mirror video monitor. That was kind of cool. I like that. Uh, that was kind of cool. Now, the other thing is at the party, you know, their son, Ethan, is, I don't know, you know, I hate to say bullying that little kid. I mean, these kids are kids. They're playing. Uh, but, <laughs> but he has them down. But again, we know what he is. So certainly when we're seeing that, it has a different meaning than if we thought it was just two kids being kids. Yeah, were we supposed to already be thinking along the lines of, has he gone overboard? <laughs> Is this the robot revolt? Uh, yeah, we're not supposed to know that yet. Right, and maybe that's what the writers want us to think. Maybe they purposely did the promos that way. Although, I think, again, from our experience, we know very often that the showrunners and the, and the writers have no say in what no. the network puts out there for a promo. And, of course, what choice did they have? I mean, I think the fact that... Well, there's a couple of facts. One is that... Most of the promotional material came from the premiere, number one. And number two, all of the critics out there that got uh, material ahead of time to critique so that they could pr promote the show through their reviews only got the premiere. And I think they're only going to get the premiere. So I think this is a phenomenon that will be localized to just episode one. Right. And you're probably right. Now, uh, the other thing I thought, and, and I think you kind of set me straight, that the kid that he was fighting, if you will, after they had their little tiff broken up, I, I thought I saw him reach around his back and, and you, you think he was just scratching. I thought <laughs> he got like, some grass up there. Or I'm something. like, okay, is he scratching his little, uh, uh, battery pack opening or, or yeah, you're probably right. But I did like the fact that, yeah, Hey, the little kid didn't hold a grudge. They just went on playing it. But it, it raised the question for me is, you know, do the other parents know what Ethan is? Yeah, I think that's a big deal. And and with Ethan starting to go to school, he mentioned in the video call that he made to Seraphim Station that he was enrolled in school now. He had made it into the school. I don't know if they had some kind of evaluation that they had to do first because of what he was, but it'll be interesting to see if they play with that dynamic, his interaction with other kids. I'm sure they will. Right. Now, also in this opening scene, she goes out to take the trash in a, another high-tech reference, which was pretty cool, inside yeah. <laughs> and outside with the trash receptacles. But is that Harmon she sees at that point? Yeah, Harmon. I think he just wasn't ready to approach her yet. Right. Or Because if it wasn't, then we'd have to say it's a third male that she's seen. And, and so, yeah, I'm assuming it's Harmon. She, he was so reluctant later on. He's like, I shouldn't have come. So I think that first time he just wasn't ready to come out of the shadows yet. Right. But it was a nice little foreboding moment. Yeah. Now, for people that didn't see the promos, then obviously we see the little scene with uh, John and Ethan at bedtime, and he tells Dad, I think I need a flip, and, you know, Dad opens up the back and, and replaces the battery, but which begs the question that, that really we, we always see with AI, does he sleep, or does he just power down? Yeah, why would he need to sleep? Why would he need to keep active batteries in, for that matter? Why wouldn't they just, you know, shut them down for the night? <laughs> but yeah. I think a lot of these things are going to have to be explained by every single thing is important to get him the human experience. Because I was thinking the same thing when uh, Molly took him out for ice cream. Is he actually eating it? What's happening to the ice cream once it goes inside his body? Yeah, exactly. Do they even have to feed him at all? Or is that, again, part of the human experience that he needs to 
to program himself. Right. And, and, you know, we'll get to it in a little bit, but I really like the approach they, they seem to be taking with this question, uh, you know, what constitutes a sentient being? I don't want to say a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we face the same thing in Battlestar Galactica with, with the Cylons. That's true, yeah. The same concerns are even brought up right. to John, and, and John is kind of like, I guess he's kind of in denial about the dangers. Yeah, and we'll talk, again, we'll talk about that, you know, when we talk about the presentation that he makes. But, uh, you know, we see Molly looking at the video photo album of Marcus, and, and he was an astronaut too, right? Yeah, they were kind of like cadets together okay. in, the, in their earlier days with the ISEA. And we don't know exactly what happened to him, but he did die. And it's even more mysterious than Harmon's death supposed death. <laughs> right. And apparently she is, has been dreaming about Marcus. So we're wondering, you know, what's precipitating these dreams? Well, I don't know. Uh, I think she might've just been saying that because of the fact that she had just gotten back and had her visions or experience on the Seraphim station. And that's what brought it on. She just says that she's having dreams because that's what John asks her. Okay. She's not ready to say why she's really thinking of Marcus. Oh, because I saw him. Well, you <laughs> know, one of, the, one of the things that struck me as I'm watching this episode is that the two of them have absolutely no chemistry together. That's and, true. There's certainly some problems in their marriage. Yeah. And I started thinking that was a flaw. And then, no, of course it's not a flaw. They really don't have a lot of chemistry. And, it's, mm-hmm. and he even mentions that had Marcus not died, would we even be together? And of course, she has the perfect answer. <laughs> we always end up where we're supposed to. Oh, that's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right. So now uh, we're wondering about the ISEA, International Space Exploration Agency, that is privatized and the government no longer, I guess, has a you know, a hand in outer space exploration. So I guess NASA has, you know, gone by the way. Yep. Yep. I assume so. Yeah. Yeah. But I really like the way they told the story. So, you know, obviously a big part of the storytelling is the use of flashback to the mission. And I think we see three flashbacks, if I recall correctly. And she's on Seraphim station for 13 months. (laughs) The computer to me, I don't know about you, sounded a lot like Hal. Yeah, the voice, the voice was eerily similar, definitely. And if you don't know who Hal is, you need to go out and do your genre sci-fi homework. Well, especially since they named him Ben, which is another three-letter name. So <laughs> I don't know if it maybe is an acronym as well. I think it is an acronym. I saw it somewhere on the station, and it looked like there were periods in between the letters. Okay. And, well, the other reason I wonder about that is because they also had a, a voice computer in their home. John, you have a call from Yasumato Corp, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, so, right, right. So it might be something that's fairly common. Right. Now, the other thing is, you know, Molly is being portrayed all throughout this episode as someone who's virtually perfect, who doesn't make mistakes. Yeah, she's super organized. And I think that's one of her strengths in the ISEA space program. In fact, I was wondering a little bit about her little experiments that she's running because she is worried that she did something wrong with these worms that she's looking at. They died. She's looking at the dead worms. Oh, what, what's going on? Maybe I contaminated the samples before they left. So I'm wondering if that's going to come up again or if that's just a throwaway moment to show what she was doing. 
Yeah, it could be. Well, the power goes out on the station uh, as she's on a VCRON call. What's VCRON? <laughs> Who for? knows? Yeah, right. Who knows? Uh, with her husband and son. And th- I'll tell you, I- I- obviously, it's a big network, CBS. You've got Steven Spielberg attached. The weightless shots were awesome. Yeah, they actually shot that in a zero-G plane. Halle Berry actually went up there and did it. Uh, you know, they must have cost a fortune to film it that way. But uh, you could tell that the place where she's doing her experiments are, you know, they have gravity because they're spinning it. So she gets centrifugal force going. And so she's sort of being pushed against the quote-unquote floor. But then when she goes to the center hub uh, to, I guess, reboot Ben... That's when she goes weightless and where she sees Marcus, because now she's in the center of the wheel where there's no spinning, and so there's no gravity. Right. Now, I don't think either of us has said it yet, and I hate to interject it at this point, but I really liked this episode. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, we haven't gotten any general reaction going, but we we should note that not only in our episode zero, but throughout the week as we're getting ready, we we're like, and it's not just us, Dave. There's others out there feeling the same way. We were worried that it might just be a bunch of hype and very pleasantly surprised to find out that we really enjoyed the episode and are looking forward to 12 more great ones. Yeah. And I think it's got a wide appeal if people will just give it a chance. You know, you mentioned that your wife really liked it, right? Yeah. Thank goodness. Because the time that it's on is just perfect for our viewing and she's not usually into sci-fi shows, but I think she's on board. Yeah. All right. Now you you know you just mentioned Marcus uh, is on the other side of the airlock, and mm-hmm. he and he's wearing civilian clothes, which again I'm not sure why that's significant, but I really feel it must be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course we don't know whether he died in space or whether he committed suicide once he returned from a mission. We, again, we don't really know. Yeah, you're thinking he might have been just like Harmon in right. that sense. Yeah, he could be, and. At first, I thought he was in some kind of vacuum area, but it looked like he was just maybe in another part of the hub. But what struck me as odd is that he's writing help me in the glasses condensation. Yeah. But when Molly finally opens the door for him, you see that there's a handle on the other side of the door. (laughs) So either he doesn't know how to open it if he's some kind of alien creature, or maybe he's insubstantial and can't open the door because he's not really there or not in the traditional sense anyway. Right. And exactly. And obviously that's the first thing we're thinking. Does she hallucinate him? Is he real? And and if he's real, you know, then who knows, you know, where we go after that. But she goes to Marcus after activating her camera. So she certainly got her wits about her enough to do that. And we have to ask ourselves, is it something that's just projecting itself in his image? And again, look, we've all seen enough sci-fi shows that, that aliens can do all sorts of things. You know, <laughs> yeah. they, they search your memories and they pick up a visual that they know will be appealing to you. And they, they pose as that image or that person. So we certainly consider that as a possibility. But then when he starts echoing her speech patterns, he starts repeating the last word uh-huh. that she says each time. But he seems to understand the phrase, it's okay, because when he echoes that back, it's like he means it rather than just echoing it. But then it starts making me think, is he learning? Yeah. And then we go back to the whole storyline with the AI and John and and his project, and that's what he wants to do with AI is treat them like children, throw them out there and let them learn. 
Well, that's the question. Is this even an alien story? We're assuming that because it's happening in space, that it's an alien. Right, right. But that's not necessarily the case. All right. So obviously we know the, the big plot point is the fact that she's come back after 13 months alone and she's pregnant. And then on top of that, we find out that she's infertile as well and has stopped taking her fertility drugs. So then when Marcus runs his finger down her front, uh-huh. kind of stops at the stomach area. Yeah, very suggestive. And so what is he doing? Yeah, did that impregnate her, or is it after the little blackout when they go in for a fairly unerotic kiss? Right. It almost looked like he was engulfing her in a sense. Right, because we have to throw all of this out there at this point because we, we don't know. I mean, we do know she's pregnant, and we do know she claims not to have had relations with anyone, and obviously there was supposedly nobody up there, so you know, obviously that's a possibility. So was she out and then he impregnated her, and then she woke up much later. That's the question, or or was it already, or did it already happen at that point, and she experienced it off camera? Right. So she wakes up on the floor, immediately watches the playback, and sees there's nothing. Right, and it's just like she sees herself, you know, like with her arms around nothing. <laughs> yeah. So does she just delete the footage because she thinks it makes her look crazy? That's what I'm wondering. Is it is that her reaction? The fact that she thinks she hallucinated something and if anyone finds out she could lose her job because the reaction seems seems much stronger than that. It's probably partly that and partly just the panic of what the heck just happened. And it just combined to give her that impulsive move. This is what I should do now. Right. I mean, we get the idea that she's an experienced astronaut, so that would certainly occur to her. Now, granted, when she gets back to Earth, she's surprised that they've added the psych evaluations, but you know that's certainly explained away in a reasonable enough manner. Yeah, and everything else she's ready for. She's had time to come up with the story, which is that she, you know, she deleted it by accident. <laughs> right. Now, I don't ordinarily like Cameron Mannheim, uh-huh. But I'm liking her in this role. Oh, well, see, the only reason you say that is because you haven't seen Person of Interest. Okay. <laughs> you would love her in that. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, the other storyline is Molly reintegrating into life on Earth after 13 months in space. And, you know, we see her with her doctor. And, you know, again, the doctor seems to be kind of dancing in circles, but we also get the idea that they're also friends. And, yes, and this friends. friend this friend doesn't want to come out and accuse her friend of what having an affair I mean of <laughs> I, I mean right because I mean that's she's a doctor if you're pregnant then that means yeah she she doesn't jump to you've been impregnated by aliens she thinks that perhaps an international crew docked and she's just not telling him about it and they had a little party. <laughs> right. And, and you know the difficulty is, I mean, because what's the option? Like you said, alien impregnation or immaculate conception, obviously neither of which are going to be satisfactory answers in an ISEA case file. Now, of course, I don't know what Sam is thinking, but yeah, the one big problem I have with their reaction to this is that A, Molly asks for more time in a situation where she really has no leg to stand on and she's acting from a selfish motive. She just doesn't want John to find out. And she just got back to her family and doesn't want to be put in quarantine so that she can't continue to spend time with them. So that's the first problem. And then B, 
the fact that Sam actually agrees to it in a situation where maybe she didn't think of the alien impregnation idea first, but clearly something happened that's com- completely anomalous. And hasn't she seen alien? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she would definitely put her in quarantine regardless of Molly's protestations. Yeah. So, yeah. So there are a number of issues in, in that regard. Now, she seems to be meeting with all of the important people, the deputy director, uh, and finally the director. And, and obviously the question we have to ask ourselves, do we believe her when she says she mistakenly erased it? And I think the answer is unequivocally, no, we don't believe her. And neither does Director Sparks. No, no. So, well, because he knows, obviously he knows more than what she thinks he knows. But he sort of blithely lets her do that when she's giving her report and talking about how she was working on rebooting Ben for 13 hours, which seems a bit excessive. And I think he knows that. Says she slept for three more hours. And then when she woke up, everything was back to normal. But what was interesting was that the director was kind of pleasant while he was being skeptical, kind of having a pleasant banter going back and forth, almost as if he didn't want to put her ill at ease. Yeah. And I think in in one regard, we have to assume that he knows far more than he's letting on. Yeah. And then the other thing is we've seen so many conspiracies with the government and private corporations that I think we're ready to go down that road here. And then we have to remember, well, wait a minute, ISEA is not the government. So when the director heads to Yasumoto Corporation, you know, we immediately, I think, feel like there's this big cover up or there's this big conspiracy, but it may just, in fact, be two corporations working together. Yeah. Perhaps there's some funding coming from Yasumoto to the ISEA. Uh, because we don't know who's behind this private corporation. It, it appears as though d- the director and perhaps others came from NASA because he says something like, there's just as much bureaucracy as there was in the old days, that kind of thing. Yeah, but now nah, I, th- I think there is a conspiracy. <laughs> but no, that's what I'm saying. E- even though they came from the government, I think there is definitely some corporate interest that we have not been introduced to besides Yasumoto, or maybe he's the big cheese of it all. Yeah. Now, in John's presentation that we'll talk about in a few minutes with his Humanics project, we see the next couple scenes with Ethan and Molly where, like the scene in the mirror for Ethan's bedroom. Yeah, he's practicing. It looked like he did a surprised expression and then a happy expression. It's like he was practicing uh, showing human emotion. Yeah, it reminds me of those high school psychology projects where the kids have to take pictures of themselves showing all the different emotions. (laughs) That's right. But what was weird is that she actually then interrupts him and says, I need you for a mission. We're going on a search. And then we just see them in a park right. with an ice cream cone. It was, yeah. the, was it the search for the perfect ice cream cone? Well, I think it was. I think it was the mission was for her to, you know, get back that connection that she's lost with her son. Even though, throughout the episode, there, there have been a couple of instances w- when her and John are talking, that she doesn't completely buy into him as her son. No. I mean, you know who buys more into it? We'll talk about it a little bit later. Is the assistant or the coworker of John's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Who has a nickname for Ethan and everything. But yeah, his mother, she's going through the motions, maybe. Yeah. I think we find that she probably acquiesced to her husband's request. We're childless. We don't really have any hope of having a child. Uh, we certainly could adopt. But 
how is this really any different to a yeah. certain extent? Well, e- even when they're having the ice cream, the guy hands her the balloon with the note, presumably from Harmon. I know what happened to you in contact soon. That's when Ethan drops his ice cream. Now, to any other person, that may seem just like a kid throwing a tantrum. But her reaction to it, did you notice? She's just kind of like, let's go. Yeah. I mean, it's like she was done playing mother. Yes, absolutely. And exhibits no patience. And, the, you know, now she does try, hey, here, you can have mine. Well, I don't want yours. And then she's done. <laughs> and then she's done. Exactly. And the other thing, though, then he runs and she, you know, eventually finds him standing next to that dead bird uh, that he says was like that when he found it, which we have... I mean, we know that's not true. We, we, even though well, we didn't, uh, I don't know, even though we didn't see it, I guess I feel like he killed that bird. Well, yeah, I think it's purposely ambiguous. You could certainly weigh in on one side or the other, and I'll probably lean in that direction as well, that he did kill it. Yeah. So. But it's just weird that he says, it was like this when I found it, and then decides, what should I say to make her feel better? Your hair looks pretty. Yes. <laughs> All right. He's learned that at a young age. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, you know, obviously that then leads to the conversation she has with John about Ethan's behavior and says that he's changed. And again, on the one hand, John's whole approach to the artificial intelligence makes perfect sense that if you give it the ability to learn, then how again, how is it any different? So he says, well, of course he's changed. You weren't here. And he's a year older, which sounds like a, a false statement in terms of aging robots, <laughs> but right. it's true. If he's a year older, then he's had a year of experience that she doesn't even know about. Right. Now, now she says he looked at her as if he hated me. Yeah, that's, uh, come on, Molly. <laughs> well, again, unless it's something, and that there's some kind of connection between what she experienced with the vision of Marcus, if it was in fact a vision, and the artificial intelligence that is Ethan. I, I don't, I'm just throwing that out there at this point. Okay. <laughs> well, because she does say that he approximate a behavior that resembles love. And perhaps Ethan is picking up on that from his mother and that she doesn't really believe it. Because a lot of times his interaction with her is that deadpan robot voice. Right. Now, she meets with the psychiatrist. And, and that's the woman you said... Right. Isn't that the same woman that, that calls uh, Ethan, what does she call no. him? No, it's they, different. Those, those actresses do look very similar, but no, that's um, the actress that plays Julie, who is John's assistant, is Grace Gummer. And I don't remember the name of the actress that plays the psychologist, but I remember she was in uh, that, that show back in the 80s um, with Paul Reiser and... Helen Hunt. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> she right. was like the sister or something. Right. Well, you know, we do find out, though, that that astronaut, and we had seen her looking at his photo in one of the hallways, Harmon, is it Krieger? I can't remember how they pronounce it. It's Yeah, it's it looks like Krieger, but it sounds like they say Krieger. Okay. But, but who knows? Right, but we find out that he committed suicide upon return from a space mission, and then because of that, they've instituted a whole new set of protocols for the astronauts to go through, which includes her psych evaluation. And we know now that we've already seen Harmon once. We assume that was him when Mm -hmm. she took out the trash the first time. And then towards the end of the episode, she's taken out the trash again, sees Harmon, and this time talks to her and tells her, it's not like on Seraphim. You're not hallucinating. I'm real. I'll find you. 
don't trust them, anybody, right? So now we're in X-Files land. Exactly. Don't trust anyone. And the fact that he actually calls it a hallucination, I'm not sure if that gives us a factual detail or just his perception of what's going on. But yeah, the fact that he calls it a hallucination takes a little bit of the reality away from it. But obviously something happened, otherwise she wouldn't be pregnant. So what kind of hallucination is that? Right. And while we're still questioning whether Marcus was real, uh-huh. I, you know, I think we're, we're fairly safe to assume that Harmon is real because he assumed, we assume he paid the balloon guy to pass the note along and, right. you know. So, because obviously she could be hallucinating him twice, but uh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I think he's real. <laughs> All right. Now, John Woods and the Humanics Project, which is perhaps one of the most fascinating elements of the whole episode. I agree. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he arrives at his conference in a driverless car. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty cool. And that whole little very short conversation he has with Ethan about whether or not Ethan is real. And Ethan's very pragmatic about it because I'm I'm not a human. I'm not real. Yeah, it's almost like he doesn't buy into the the he doesn't drink the John Kool-Aid. <laughs> right, right, right. But John tells him, no, you exist just like any human being, therefore, what's the difference? And then of course we do get the short interaction with Julie. Not sure if she's a partner, an assistant, a coworker, somebody who works at Humanics, obviously. And she has a nickname for Ethan, calls him Rabbit. And Ethan actually has a very strong, positive reaction to seeing her. And you want to say it's even stronger than for his mother. Oh, by, by far. And, and it'll be interesting to see whether we get any of their backstory. And whether there might even be some family dynamics and perhaps that there was something going on while Molly was in space. Yeah. Well, we find out the whole purpose of this speech that he's giving is to secure funding for the Humanics Project. And to say that he is not good at what he's trying to do would be an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Because well, first of all, I wasn't a big fan of the 3D PowerPoint uh, with, no. with, with floating bullets. <laughs> no. So because it really was just like a bulleted PowerPoint and wasn't as dynamic as maybe he thought it was. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, it was kind of cool, you know, the whole idea of making that human connection, bring humanity to the machine. And, you know, the, that example of the medical assistant can give a vaccine to a child with 100 percent accuracy, but it doesn't know how to comfort him or her if they're afraid of needles. OK, fine. Good. Yeah. And even brings up the task android, I guess like a, a bank teller. A task android can process your bank deposit, but can't share your joy when it helps you buy your first home. Now, uh, besides the message that he's trying to get across, I think that's interesting from the standpoint that there are also other robots in this future culture that we don't get to see in this episode, but maybe we will see some robots roaming around. All right. And does it matter what we call them? Is it a robot? Is it an android? Is it a... I feel like Cyborg. robot robot is just purely mechanic. Okay. Android tends to bring in that human connection. And cyborg is like it was human until we put a bunch of machine parts into them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. And that seems to be what Ethan is, right? Ethan Android, yes. Okay. All right. So he talks about designing an AI that's programmed from the very beginning to seek human connection programmed by day-to-day human existence, which, again, makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's it's an intelligent 
machine that can learn. So why can't it just simply learn the way a child would learn? You know, just like the child learned that, no, you don't resolve a conflict by jumping on top of the kid and punching him. Right. And, and so you have a certain amount of sympathy for John when the one guy says something about how do you control its behavior? And he says, well, you know, it's not a master slave thing here. We're trying to let, make them be a person. How did you learn as a person? Same way this Android is going to be learning as well. And we don't know if this is a certain amount of naivete on John's part or whether or not he knows what he's talking about. Because presumably he's an expert in the field, but these guys think like we do, that what's to stop the machines from taking over humanity? Right. And his answer to me is not very satisfying, and it certainly wasn't very satisfying to the people in the audience in, in that I'm not going to provide any safeguards. No, I'm not putting any thing to prevent them from taking over humanity. That's not what this is about. <laughs> right. And as you mentioned earlier, did they not see aliens? Well, did they not see the Terminator? <laughs> That's right. Skynet. Hello. Well, because you have it, have to at least placate them, but he's not willing to give up on the principle of the thing that this android is a person and is alive. And he wants to almost like stand up for androids rights before androids even really get going in the culture. Right. But to see, this is a tough call because on the one hand, you understand that. But mm -hmm. but when you are a parent with a real child, you know, you do have that control so right. that, that if your child is out of control, I mean, you're bigger than your child. And while I'm not advocating physical violence, I mean, if it would come <laughs> to that, the parent could grab the child and whatever. There are options. But that's the question. What are your options? What is your plan if things go south? Right. And. Not just the fact that he gives them not a satisfactory answer, but then because it then gets into a distinction between, are you asking me why I don't have a contingency plan to kill my own child? I mean, that's kind of an extreme stance. And you can even see Julie off stage trying to warn John yes. not to go down this road. Right. And, and it's also the idea of religious connotations as well, in, in that the whole idea of a soul and Again, he, he's just lost it completely where he refers to people that believe in religion as idiots. <laughs> I'm sorry. I accept your apology. No, I'm sorry that you're one of those idiots. Yes, yes. So <laughs> I like that. Uh, you're right. So you know at that point it's, it's just disintegrated to the fact that he will get no funding from this group, which he doesn't, but we do get an interesting twist along the way. Right, and due in part to the director's conversation, which we'll talk about in a minute, Yasumoto decides he's going to not be able to go against the board, but as a private citizen, he can fund the project himself. And that's what ends up happening. Yeah. Best of both worlds, it would seem. Okay. What's the deal with him? I mean, he, we first see him, he's in some kind of like Michael Jackson sleep chamber. <laughs> yeah. It's like a yellow coffin with some kind of goo all over him. Right, that somebody's got like a little mini vac that they're... Uh... <laughs> well, because you immediately jump to like a cryogenic chamber, some kind of preservation, stasis, something like that, suspended animation. But why? Is it because he's had... Does he have health problems? Is it to keep him from aging, maybe? I mean, uh, all kinds of different conclusions you could draw. I mean, hasn't he heard of Halo? I mean, come on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. 
monitoring your health. Yes, but uh, so regardless, it, it just doesn't seem like he's been gone that long because it, people say welcome back or whatever, but it's not, you know, everybody clearly knows him. But we then see the director of ISEA meeting with Yasumoto about the anomalies on Seraphim. And this is directly after the director just finished interrogating Molly or debriefing her, I should say. And yeah, his first thing going to Yasumoto is that, uh, yeah, we had an anomaly and we're not getting the truth from the astronaut involved. Right. And is it another solar flare? And and you almost want to see if they're making finger quotes when they say solar flare. But then they also follow up like Krieger. Yeah, well, I think maybe it's not a euphemism, (laughs) solar flare. Maybe it's linked to solar flares because the director even asked Molly, anything anomalous happened during those 13 hours? Like maybe when the solar flare happened and he just kind of glosses straight through it. So I'm I'm leaning towards the fact that the solar flare is maybe some sort of vehicle for delivery of the alien intelligence. Not sure. Yeah, it could be. But obviously they do have the video footage of Krieger. And again, at this point, we assume his suicide was a cover story. Right. Now, was it his cover story or was it their cover story? Right. Was he told <laughs> to just disappear? So... You know, but all sorts of little tidbits come out of this conversation. You know, Asimoto, or he tells Yasumoto that he doesn't believe her because she doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. And then this could be everything. Stay close. So what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, they are expecting something almost like like they've been looking for this to come down the road for a while now. Right. And then we see that that scene where Yasumoto and the and director Sparks are both watching Molly's session with the shrink. Yeah, so. the fact that they were both watching it. If it had just been one or the other, but yeah, the fact that they're both interested in what she says to the psychologist is very interesting and are they in on that together or are they doing that spying individually separately from each other? I don't know, Mike. I awesome first episode. Yep, there's a lot to sink your teeth into, a lot to speculate on. In fact, we have just a few questions to kind of just throw out there and see what people think, maybe uh, something to mull on until our next episode. For example, what actually happened on Seraphim Station, obviously, and the other plot line, what is the true goal of the Humanix Project? Yeah, I, I think he has altruistic motives to be quite honest i think he's just one of those scientist guys that he thinks this is a good idea he thinks this is the future and as we said tonight uh, it's as if he doesn't really see the big picture that's right and whether or not his altruism will prevent bad things happening or not we'll see but right now the link between yasumoto corp and isea is it strictly business or something more nefarious that's right and what's this conspiracy that's hinted at by the supposedly dead astronaut, perhaps it has something to do with Yasumoto or the ISEA. Right. And obviously Marcus died. How did he die? And is there a connection between what happened to Molly and what happened to the supposedly dead astronaut Harmon? Or, and maybe even Marcus. (laughs) How much also does the ISEA know about what happened to Molly? We know they know something, or at least the director does. Is there some sort of, plan in place 
And why do they actually allow Molly to lie instead of calling her on it or bringing her into the fold? Right. Now, we just mentioned about Yasumoto. I saw in your notes, you called it the golden coffin. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what was the purpose of that? Rejuvenation, suspended animation is some sort of health problem. Uh, but then I think one of the most fundamental questions that come out of the pilot revolves around Ethan. And is he simply learning in a different way than most normal children? Or is he going to turn out to actually be dangerous? Yeah, I'm leaning towards the first, that he's just learning in a different way, and it just makes it look weird and creepy. Okay, see, I I tend to think he's going to be dangerous. (laughs) Okay. Well, we come upon a segment that we're going to carry over from our Continuum podcast, and that's predictions. This is the kind of show I think is going to be really good for having some fun trying to figure out if we can noodle through what's going to happen in some of the various plot lines. Do you want to start us off with your prediction this week? Yeah, I will. Um, ISEA and Yasumoto Corp have absolutely no clue what's going on here. Wow. (laughs) Or they think something completely different happened. Well, well, you know, they know... There are anomalies, but they really have no clue as to what is really going on. Oh, that's a bold prediction. Yeah. They may think they know what is going on, but they've got it completely wrong. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, my prediction actually has to do with something I mentioned very briefly earlier on, and that is some of the family dynamics. I think that there's going to be some kind of confrontation between Molly and John with regard to Julie, that there's going to be some insinuation of an affair, even if there wasn't actually an affair. I think there's definitely going to be a conflict, uh, a marital conflict centered around the relationship between John and Julie. Okay. So did you pick up on that before I actually brought that up in our discussion? I did not. No, not at all. That's what I was hoping. (laughs) So no, not at all. So uh, something to be thinking about and other predictions can come from you. And we actually did, and I guess I was kind of surprised, Dave, get some feedback for our very first episode. It's kind of nice. Yeah, well, our old friend Gezus says, strong start for unique new genre series. Firstly, I found the episode nicely paced, introducing characters and story arcs with no rush. For some reason, I like my genre shows slow once in a while. (laughs) Secondly, who is Julie, the character played by Grace Gummer? From what I gathered, she's a co-worker or a friend of John Woods and has a warm connection with Ethan, but that's it. A bit too little for one of the main characters. I'm sure she'll be fleshed out in upcoming episodes, perhaps with some kind of romantic entanglement Ooh. between her and John Woods. Ah, Gezus, you obviously agree with me there then. Yeah, finally, <laughs> I wanted to talk about Yasumoto and the procedure he was having. To me, it looked like suspended animation. I wonder if he's prolonging his life because he can or because he must, terminal illness or other reasons. Also, how long has he been doing this? Yeah, is it an ongoing procedure that he has to do every now and then? I, I think so. It was really kind of cool how he came out and had a long table that was lit from beneath and small bites of this or that, like sushi and olives and whatnot. <laughs> it was very like over-the-top Japanese. Yeah, so who else did we hear from? 
We also heard from Christopher Bork, who's, uh, again, one of our listeners from the Continuum podcast, and he really, really, really enjoyed this pilot. I'm just going to read an excerpt from his email. He said, my key question for this episode is whether or not Ethan killed the bird. Yes, there are many questions about a great deal of things in my head, but this one seems to be at the heart of this storyline. If he did kill the bird, it would imply that he is indeed learning as a child would that there are things you don't tell or else you may get in trouble. He essentially has the free will to make that decision for himself. That leads to the idea that he understands other people's concept of right and wrong well enough to choose to lie about it, but he may not fully understand the meaning of morality at a deeper level because he doesn't truly feel remorse. I think the question of whether he found the bird or discovered it as he claimed will be answered. His squabble with the child at the party suggests that he's learning what is right and wrong as a set of rules, but is he fully comprehending the implications of those rules or is he simply learning the boundaries? Yeah, and that's, I think, a, a big part of this show. And, and, and we've used the word morality several times in the course of this discussion. And, and I think the thing I find a little bit strange I mean, how old would you say Ethan's supposed to be? Seven? Seven or eight, I'd say, yeah. Seven or eight. At that point, shouldn't he have already learned a lot of these things? Well, but he's not growing from zero. Well, good point. True. He might have only been around a few years in this exact chassis, if you will. (laughs) Uh, That's a good point, which then begs the question, what do the other parents think? Yeah, where'd he come from? (laughs) And why does he not age? Yeah, I'm wondering. It is a very curious question whether or not Uh, they know about him being an android. But uh, Christopher says, I'll leave you with one last thought. I noted on Twitter that the version of Marcus that she encountered, we assume she encountered anyway, on the station, looked at her with the same curious detachment that Ethan did at the moment she looked stunned about the bird. Food for thought on how those two reactions were so eerily similar. And I think, Dave, that goes into what you were saying about artificial intelligence versus alien intelligence. Nice. So, yeah, thanks, guys, for giving us feedback for our very first <laughs> podcast about uh, Extant. So that was very helpful, and we hope more people will contribute to that segment as well in the future. But that's it for this edition of the Dark Matter Extant podcast. Keep up with show news and fan interaction on Twitter by following us at Dark Matter GSM, as well as other Golden Spiral Media podcasts by following GSM Podcasts. And Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of episode 102 of Extant, entitled Extinct. Until then, feel free to visit goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write us a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Dark Matter, please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. And we'll talk to you guys next weekend.